We continue our series from the book of Joel from the Old Testament. It's the second of the minor prophets there. And it's uh, considered by one of the older books that were written. And it's got a very short and very powerful message. So last week we saw that one of the key things that, that had happened was that the massive locusts had attacked Israel that time there. It was a devastating event, much like our bushfires and our drought here in Australia. It had a massive impact. As we come to Joel chapter 2, he takes up that same theme of locusts, but he makes it in a far deeper sense because he describes not a locust attack as in literal locusts, but he said the locusts are a symbol of the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and everything is finished. And so it's about a far greater event. And so the day of the Lord looks at two things. It looks at how bad the destruction of Jerusalem was in AD 70, but most significantly at the day that Jesus comes back. So how does Joel describe this new day of the Lord, which is far more powerful than the one that we learned about last week? So we see there in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, for the day of the Lord is coming and it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Fire devours before them like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Of course, last week we saw Joel 1. The locusts were described as an army. And Jesus is saying in the day of his return is like a literal army coming in. Then in verse 10, the earthquakes before them, the sun and the moon are darkened. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it. Now, as we saw last week, after he brought the judgment of the locusts, he said, what we need to do as a people is come to repentance. And he does the exact same thing here in chapter 2 in Joel. He says, as the day of the Lord is coming near, it should bring us to repentance and make sure that we are right with God. So there in chapter 2, verse 12, yet even now, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God because he is gracious and he is merciful. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster and who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So Joel's words were very passionate. He says, make sure that you are right with God. And it's funny, you can be a Christian for 30, 40 years and you suddenly realise that you hit a point in your life, you're rarely reading the scriptures, you're not praying, that you've wandered into the wilderness. And God is there saying, come back to me, come back to my word, come back to prayer, come back to being godly. And so what is God's response? There in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. And have pity on his people. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Praise the name of the Lord who has dwelt wondrously with us. Now it's interesting. We all prayed for rain for weeks. But did we make sure we gave thanksgiving to God for the rain that came? And uh, it's easy. In a week or two, some, the whole people, the grass will be green. Everything's gone back to normal. And we'll just forget about the drought. Well, at least we will in the city. The country people will take a lot longer because uh, they'll need a lot more rain than just one week of rain. Now, is there anything for uh, Joel? He brings us to a whole new chapter and he starts giving a, a sense of depth 
to the role of the Holy Spirit. So if you were Jewish, you said there is one God. You had no concept of Jesus coming as God's Son. And the Holy Spirit you knew was distinct, and I'll look at it uh, in more depth what Jews thought about it, but you didn't really grasp that God the Spirit and God the Father were two separate identities. And we're coming now to what is considered by many to be the most powerful Old Testament passage on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's the very passage that Peter uses on the day of Pentecost to say, this is the prophecy from the Old Testament, and today it has been fulfilled. Now it's interesting when we come to the idea of the Trinity, and some people would joke about the Catholic Church and say uh, they have Father, Son and Mary. As a matter of fact, the Muslims understood the Trinity that way. So if you read the, the uh, Muslim Quran, it says this, Beware of the day when Allah will say, O Jesus, Son of Mary, did you say to the people, Take me and my mother as deities beside Allah? Allah, of course, is God. So the Quran says, He is God the Father. And now Jesus says that He's God the Son and says His mum must be God the Mother. And so that was how uh, Muslims perceived Jewish teaching. Now, sadly, uh, there are some Protestants who will say, yes, I believe in the Trinity, Father, Son and Bible. And sadly, there are some uh, denominations who really will mention the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we turn to the Old Testament, it is mainly whispers and glimpses to the Holy Spirit. I enjoyed thinking uh, that I'd research what do Jews view the Holy Spirit as. I enjoyed reading a couple of rabbis and they were quite insightful. But I thought the clearest explanation actually came from the Jewish Encyclopedia. And uh, it was a long article. I've just grabbed uh, excerpts from it. And here's a couple of quotes. The most noticeable difference between the living and the dead is the breath. And the Jewish word for breath and spirit is the same word. So to have no breath is to have no spirit. That means that you are dead. So we see that the life-giving spirit does not have an earthly origin, but it comes directly in the supernatural realm of coming from God. So where do we get that idea from? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the Spirit and the breath of Almighty has given me life. So Spirit of God and the breath of the Almighty are two parallel terms. Breath, Spirit are linked in there together. However, the Spirit of God is not identical with life-giving Spirit. It says that uh, he pours out his own spirit upon all that he has chosen to execute his will. His spirit abides in them. It says that the special spirit of God rests upon men and may enter into a man and speak through that person. So the prophet sees and hears by means of God's Holy Spirit. And although the Holy Spirit is often named instead of God, it is conceived by our Jewish people as being distinct, but they don't able to give it a depth of understanding what does being distinct mean is there God the Father and God the Holy Spirit they don't get to that level but they see that the Holy Spirit is a distinct manifestation of the active will of God it's how God acts and relates to us here on earth and so when the, the prophets spoke it said that the prophets were filled with the Holy Spirit but it also said there are other people in the Old Testament who received the Holy Spirit to do a specific ministry. And so when we get to the New Testament, when it says the Holy Spirit is poured on all believers, 
that is such an overwhelming idea for them because they, they thought this Holy Spirit was giving out very little drops here and there to some people but not all people. So when we get to the day of uh, Pentecost, the Spirit falls on all believers. And the Bible teaches us that all believers, from the moment you are converted, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the first and foremost, you've got to realize the Spirit is a personality. Father, Son, Spirit. They are three persons. And uh, sadly, there are some groups who would say, oh no, the Spirit is just a force or an energy. And of course, Acts 5.3 gives us the exact opposite teaching. So we found that Ananias and Sapphira had lied about how much money they donated to the church. Now it's interesting when Paul answers them, he said this in Acts 5 verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart that you lie to the Holy Spirit and kept back part of the proceedings? Now it's interesting, you can't lie to electricity. You can't lie to an energy force. But you can lie to a person. So even in the Old Testament, we get whispers that the Holy Spirit is the person of God. And in the New Testament, from the day of Acts uh, to the day of Pentecost, the Spirit suddenly comes down and fills every believer. So what does the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, what does the Spirit do? Now it's interesting, right from the very first part of Genesis, as a matter of fact, the second verse of Genesis chapter 1, it says this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now the idea of hovering like a bird, it gives us a sense of personality. It's a person. And so right from the very beginning, the Spirit is there with God. And it goes on to say the Spirit gave um, life and humanity. So the Spirit is uh, breathed into Adam and Eve. That's what made them different from the rest of all the other animals that were made. Animals were made by God. But humanity was breathed in by God. That gave us our soul. And of course, the Spirit did come on certain people. It came on judges, it came on warriors, it came on prophets, and would give them extraordinary ministries and extraordinary power. Now, Ezekiel, when he talks about his own ministry, he says, The Spirit entered me when I spoke from God. He consciously knew it was God's Spirit working in him to do what he did. And of course, the last thing the Old Testament tells us is the Spirit inspired believers for holiness. And so what do we call the Spirit? We call it Holy Spirit. That's the two go together. But you think, it's, uh, we could call it the Godly Spirit or the Loving Spirit. But Holy Spirit, that sense, it, it sets us apart for God's ministry. And of course, the Scriptures promise that someday God would put His Spirit in His people in a way that would cause them to start living fully and actively for God. Now when it comes to the idea of the Trinity, it is not taught clearly and loudly in the Old Testament. But there are whispers and glimpses. And one of the great passages is Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 5. And it talks about the Spirit, it talks about Jesus, it talks about God the Father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Of course, who's that? Uh, the child of Jesse? Jesse is one of the Old Testament characters. That is one part of Jesus' ancestral line. So come forth from the uh, shoot of Jesse is, of course, referring to Jesus. And then God says, The Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of God, shall rest upon this person. He shall have the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, 
spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So there's a sense of saying when Jesus comes, he will be fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now for an Old Testament person thinking, wow, Jesus is going to have the Holy Spirit in the double dose, that was like a major significant statement. So what is the prophecy that Joel says? Now this uh, quote is then given exactly to us in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when Peter says, you see people speaking in tongues? This is why. So there, chapter 2, verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward, I will pour my spirit on all flesh to your sons and to your daughters. They shall prophesy. And your old men, they shall dream dreams. But your young men, they shall see visions. Even on the male and on the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, this verse is not unique. There's a whole lot of other verses. So Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us all from on high. Or Isaiah 43. I'll pour out water on thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I'll pour my Spirit on their offspring. Many of you may have seen photos of before and after of farms. Where farms are beautiful and lush. Then after they are just desert and dust. And on Facebook, there were numerous times people said before and after photos. And the scary ones is where you see this beautiful, full, lush dam, and the next photo is the dam empty. Well, the hard one is where you see a, a dam in the field that is empty, and beside it there is a cow lying dead on the ground. And these are horror photos. This here is saying the exact opposite. Here is the desert when it's at its worst. And here is the desert after it rains. Now it's interesting, the last Mad Max movie was meant to be made in Australia. And uh, there's one mistake they did not uh, do in their agenda. And just before they were going to start filming, a whole lot of rain fell upon the desert. Now beforehand, the desert was great because it had all these awesome Mad Max shots of the vehicles driving through the desert and dust everywhere. So what happens when the rain happens? All the wildflowers came up. And somehow doing Mad Max movies with all these pretty flowers and uh, acres and acres of flowers kind of ruined the movies. Had to go to Africa. But what does the Bible say about the Spirit of God? I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my water and my spirit on my offspring. This real sense of uh, urgency. Now, it's interesting in Zechariah, once more, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, grace, God's free gift of forgiveness, is one of the most powerful doctrines that the New Testament church had. So that they will look on me and they will look upon whom has been pierced and they will mourn for him. As one mourns for one only son, and they shall weep bitterly over him. So you have the picture here of Jesus. You have the picture of God's Spirit being ministered to by God the Holy Father. So the three are blended in together. So what does the Spirit do? The Spirit comes on both the Old 
and the young. The Spirit comes in both the master and the servant. The Spirit comes in both the sons and the daughters. It falls on everyone. And in the New Testament, it captures that idea for you and I as believers. It says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male or female, because we're now all one in Christ. And I would have loved being in the early church because you would have the church where there'd be slaves sitting beside people who were part of the Roman Empire's chief political leaders. I was in a church out west that was a very um, a poor area and one of the people in our congregation was one of the uh, leading managers in the Macquarie Bank. And he said he loved coming to church because there he was as a leading manager in the Macquarie Bank, one of the mover and shakers in big business. And he would have morning tea with a pensioner or someone who's unemployed or someone who's on mental, pen, uh, mental illness benefits. And he said from his point of view, he loved the fact that our church captured everybody. Male, female, rich, poor, servant, slave, Jew, Greek, Gentile. We are one in Christ. Now, for you and I as believers, there are some churches who say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. Um, I had a great chat with a, a lovely guy down the beach. He said, one of the guys in his church believes if you're not fully immersed, baptised, you're not a Christian. And uh, he's a Baptist and he says, you know, this guy's a bit silly in his ideas. But what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? It says this in uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus saves us. Not on the basis of our deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. And of course the symbolism of baptism is uh, you uh, have a person getting baptised, you pour water on them and that pouring is like God pouring his Spirit upon us. Or as it says in Romans chapter 5, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. Now, there's a little bit about uh, debate amongst theologians. Do you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion? But a lot actually are more inclined to say, no, actually, you received the Holy Spirit before conversion because it's the Holy Spirit that gave you the power to become a believer in the first place. So in other words, God revived you so that you could respond. Now as we come here, the miracle that fascinated the crowd was the miracle of tongues, not the remarkable signs of nature. Now in Joel, it prophesied that uh, there'd be darkness, there'd be earthquakes, and the thought is, you know, where are these parts of that prophecy fulfilled? Now some say with the darkening of the sun between noon and three o'clock, on the day Jesus died, is the darkness. And it also says when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. So some say that would fulfill Joel's prophecy and promise. Now Peter uses Joel's prophecy to declare the promised Holy Spirit has come. And this is why believers, men and women, rich and poor, were praising God in such an ecstatic manner. Peter was answering the accusation, are these believers drunk? He says, no, they are not. It's the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting, the prophecy in Joel starts being fulfilled at Pentecost. 
but it needs to be fulfilled continually over and over again as an ongoing event. The church today needs a new filling with the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God is what empowers all ministry. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit for believers? It says, a believer cannot witness to God without the Holy Spirit. That you and I will not understand scriptures unless the Holy Spirit reveals God's word to us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to glorify Christ as our Lord. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us insight to how we should pray and what we should speak. It's the Holy Spirit that works inside believers to create our, our, um, our character. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, humility and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit working in the life of the believer. We need revival today. We need a deeper working of the Spirit in God's people. It needs to lead us to confession of our sins. It needs to lead us to repentance of what we've done wrong. It needs us to go to God and say, God, forgive us. And it brings us to unity. Now, it's interesting. There are some people trying to get all the churches to become one big church and say, oh, that's unity. You say, no, no. Unity is when we do things of purpose. I quite enjoyed the Billy Graham Crusades because denominations all over the world would come together for one event and say, we will support what Billy Graham is doing and we will work beside each other and we'll pray beside each other and what are we praying for? We're praying for the gospel to touch lives. And this is what brings us into unity. So what has Joel been describing? He's been describing the promises that, uh, that describe the time when a nation will return and rend their hearts. We have not yet seen the nation of Israel or any nation rendered heart before God. It follows that while there has been a partial fulfilment that Peter describes in the book of Acts, there remains a final and complete fulfilment in the future. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is not a fulfilment, but it's a preview and a sample of the Spirit's power and work that is released in all believers in all places and all times. Revival is when the church is overwhelmed by the work of the Spirit. Now it's interesting, when we talk about the great revivals of the 1900s and things like the Great Awakening, most of them were actually Reformed Presbyterian churches who were godly Bible-preaching churches who had revival. And uh, one of the revivals I found really quite delightful. It was on a small island and uh, it was just a small little Presbyterian church and there was an old-fashioned stone church there and the minister was faithfully was preaching God's word day after day and he'd go around town and talk to everybody and just minister. And one Friday night, there's a whole lot of people in the pub. And one of the people said, look, I'm really, really convicted that I should go to church. And uh, the other people said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll come with you. you know, that'd, be, that'd be a fun thing to do. You know, we'll just go down to the local church and have a look at the church. Now, of course, what church is open on Friday night? No church is open on Friday night, except for this week. The local Presbyterian church had, had decided to have a week of gospel meetings every night and the starting was Friday night. So uh, ministers there, you know, the normal congregation ministers there, you know, maybe one or two visitors are there. And suddenly about 30 people walk through the back door, all from the pub. And you imagine the minister thinking, gee, I hope this is not going to end in some havoc. And he stands up and he just preaches faithfully God's word. And a whole lot of people responded. 
And he's thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And these people, of course, what do they do? They go back to the pub the next night and say, oh, you should have gone to church with us last night. He was so good. Come along with us tonight. So next night there's like 60 people, then 80, then 100, then 200 people. It wasn't long until about three or 400 people were coming to that church, that tiny little Presbyterian church on a faraway island. And people throughout Scotland heard about what had happened to this church. And they said, oh, can you come and preach in our church too? And others had heard because of being in the media and the press. So people said, oh, these people got touched by the church. We should go and have a look and see what's happening. And soon revival spread across Scotland. No one remembers the name of the preachers. No one remembers who sang what. They would have been just old-fashioned hymns like we sing here. Nothing fantastic had occurred. But life after life after life were touched by God's Spirit. What causes revival? It starts with praying believers seeking God's will. It comes from people sharing with their friends and saying, why don't you come to church with me? Years ago when I was a youth uh, minister, I'd tell my uh, youth kids, I'd say, look, if you want kids, your friends to come to youth group on a Friday night, invite them to stay at your house on Friday night. They'll come for tea. Say, on Friday night, come to tea at my house. We'll go to my youth group and then we'll stay up all night watching movies till like 3 o'clock in the morning and fall asleep and go gaga at some stage. And so say so all these kids would come along with their friends to youth group. They'd be invited uh, out of uh, you know, a sense of staying at a friend's place. And our youth groups grew dramatically as a result of them just bringing their friends. Now the interesting thing about this prophecy, it talks about dreams and visions and prophecy. It says these are the supernatural expressions of God's word made alive. So what is God's word? Hebrews 4 says this, The word of God is active and alive. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to even dividing the soul and the spirit joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So what is prophecy? Prophecy is when someone clearly teaches God's word. And it's interesting, you look to Joel and say, where does Joel get his ideas from? Go back to uh, the book of Deuteronomy and you'll find the teachings of Moses are being, made, uh, being brought to life by Joel to the people who are in front of him. So the Old Testament, some of the prophets were predictive, but their main teaching was calling people back to God, calling people to repent and to be transformed by God's Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting, we have dreams, visions and prophecy. What's dreams? And I love this uh, uh, summary that I got from one of the writers. God speaks to us when we're asleep. So what are visions? God speaks to us when we're awake. <laughs> I thought that's a great way of describing it. And both of them are put together to be prophecy, God speaking God's word. And in my research, I found that there are 21 different dreams in the Bible. Ten are in Genesis. Now, some of the dreams were given to believers, but other dreams were given to unbelievers. So Abimelech is warned to not touch Sarah, the wife of Abraham, in Genesis 20 as a result of a dream. We find that Jacob wrestles with God in a dream. Uh, we find that God uh, comes to Jacob in a dream. The dream recaps Laban's mistreatment of Jacob and shows that God will provide for Jacob despite 
Laban's schemes against him. In other words, God's will, God's way will occur. Now, Joseph has two dreams. Of course, it upsets his brothers. The first dream, Joseph and his brothers are gathered together and it says that uh, his brothers basically will fall down in front of him and, and, and serve him. And of course, he's the youngest brother and all the other older brothers really get angry with him and eventually leads to him being off to uh, Egypt. And however, in his position in Egypt, God uses him to save the nation. Now, the biggest number of dreams occurs in the New Testament with before and around the birth of Jesus. <clears throat> so an angel tells Joseph there is no need to divorce Mary. The child he's expecting is his saviour. The wise men visit the young Jesus and they are told in a dream to avoid King Herod on their return home. God warns Joseph to take Mary and uh, Joseph to Egypt before Herod hunts down and kills the children of Bethlehem. And after Herod dies, God tells Joseph to come back from Egypt, but not via Judea, because Herod's son is in power. And so God warns Joseph to be steered from the territory. God can use dreams. God can speak in visions. But it's interesting, whenever people are touched by dreams and visions in the Bible, what came from them? God's word powerfully. And so what is a prophet? A man who powerfully preaches the scriptures to people. That's why most Presbyterian churches do what's called expository preaching, where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, because that is a Presbyterian minister prophesying, because their preaching is God's word coming alive. So what does the future hold for you and I? The last verses of uh, Joel 2 says this, The wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field will turn into a forest. I will show you wonders in heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who says, yes, there is God. I know that I'm a sinful person. I call upon God's name and say, God, come into my life as my Lord and my Saviour. And through that, God will forgive them of their sins. That is the message of a prophet. To preach powerfully that God wants to change your life. What is a Christian? A person who believes in transformation. What is a Christian? Someone who believes that the past can be forgiven. What is a Christian? Someone who says, yes, I know how bad you have been, but God can turn you around and make you a brand new creation. Being a Christian is not about history or geography or psychology or just conversations. It's about God changing lives for eternity. What is revival? When you and I start praying, please God, start changing lives for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, use us, your servants, to speak forth your word to a world that is dying. Father, make us hungry for your scriptures and bold in our preaching to others. Amen.